0: i <laughs> Listening to Shelf Talking, the official podcast of Literati Bookstore in downtown Ann Arbor. I'm Sam Krachenko. Later on we'll hear a pair of stories by our writer Minjin Lee Hales as incandescent. But first, Kylie Reed. A recent fixture on the New York Times bestseller list, Reads Such a Fun Age, concerns the complicated relationship of Amira, a young African American babysitter, and Alex her white employer. The novel has received heaps of praise, including a starred review from Kirkus, which called Reed's debut charming, challenging, and so interesting you can hardly put it down. Earlier this year, Reed visited Literati for a conversation with fellow novelist and newly minted University of Michigan professor Julie Bunton. We'll hear their chat after a brief reading.
1: Thank you so much for coming. This is my first time in Michigan. I'm checking the state off of the list, and I'm really pleased to be here. Um, I don't like when authors talk too much about what happened before, so I'm just going to drop you in and start reading. (laughs) In the vestibule of the Chamberlain home sat a small teak table near the front door. On top was a porcelain cup that collected change, A wooden trough holding three sprouting succulents and an upright phone charger from CB2 that was plugged into the wall behind it. In the past few weeks, Alex had developed what she knew was an awful and invasive habit of returning home, closing the door quietly behind her, bending at the hip, and looking at Amira's phone. The small entryway was protected by another door that entered into the main foyer, which made Alex feel as though she wasn't quite at home and that she wasn't exactly looking through the phone. She didn't know the passcode, and she would never use it if she did, but the lock screen of Amira's phone was always filled with information that was youthful, revealing, and completely addicting. She never took Amira's phone off the charger and she rarely pressed any buttons. Messages and notifications would light up on their own. But three times a week, she scrolled with her middle finger as she listened to Amira cook dinner upstairs upstairs, and tell Briar to blow in case it was hot. A month had gone by since the night at Market Depot, and in that time, Alex had developed feelings towards Amira that weren't completely unlike a crush. She became excited to hear Amira's key in the door. She felt disappointed when it was time for her to to leave. And when Amira laughed or spoke without being prompted, Alex felt like she had done something right. The times when this happened were few and far between, which was why Alex kept peeking at her sitter's cell phone. She would have just checked Amira's social media channels instead, but from what she'd gathered from searching, Amira didn't have any. Amira did have a group text titled Siblings, where her brother and sister sent songs, memes, and trailers for upcoming movies. Amira was constantly texting Zara, labeled Queen Zara, who would often reply in clipped messages one right after the other. No, stop, don't you dare, I cannot. Zara and Amira went out nearly every weekend, and many of their texts discussed the logistics. One afternoon, Amira must have just placed her phone on the charger moments before Alex arrived, because it sat unlocked and waiting. Alex didn't even have to scroll. Amira had texted, what are you wearing? To which Zara had replied, slut. And then Amira had responded, cool, same. When Alex went upstairs, Amira was playing on the floor with Briar and saying, okay, now you have to tell me your second favorite vegetable. Sometimes there were no conversations available for Alex to read, but there was always paused music. Some of the names Alex recognized, like Drake and Janet Jackson, Outkast and Usher, but most of them were strangers, like J. Cole and Tyga, Big Sean, and Travis Scott. Alex ended up Googling things like, is Childish Gambino a person or a band? (laughs) How do you pronounce the name S-Z-A? One evening, Alex memorized the name of a song and later Googled it in her room. Alex listened for the first verse in her headphones, which began with, Let a nigga try me, try me, I'm going to get his whole motherfucking family. Alex's eyebrows rose up into her forehead. She looked over at the baby next to her and whispered, Whoops. (laughs) But out of all the information she'd gathered in the past few weeks, what was most intriguing as a future point of connection was the fact that Amira was definitely seeing someone new. Someone she'd labeled in her phone as Kenan and Kel. One afternoon, Alex saw this on her way out. He'd said, maybe next time let me know that you don't drink coffee, weirdo. On a Wednesday evening, he'd said, is basketball something you'd be interested in? And one time, Amira sent a screenshot of her conversation with him to Zara, to which Zara responded, that boy doesn't play. The messages between Amira and this new person were of that cool and careful variety that only exists at the beginning of something, as you try to exude spontaneity and effortless humor and space out responses to appear busy and even keeled. Alex was dying to ask Amira about him. To know if his ke- name was Kenan or Kel or neither, she wanted to cross a threshold where Amira would offer up information on her own, and more importantly, trust Alex to keep it. And tonight, after seeing Amira's newest message, excited to see you tonight, Ms. Tucker, Alex decided to make this happen. Thank you.
2: really great. I know you're in the middle of a really intense book tour, which congratulations. Thank you. In in case you all don't know this already, Such a Fun Age debuted on the New York Times bestseller list, which is amazing (laughs) and really exciting. Um, So I can imagine that you're probably... (laughs) You've probably heard a lot of people talking to you about what your book is about. Um, yes, and I always like to ask writers <laughs> what they would say their book is about. I think at this point in the process, once the jacket copy and the press release and all this right. stuff happens, that can get a little—you can get the like PR version right. nailed. And I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about what what, what yeah. this book is about, and and maybe too, like where it came from.
1: Totally. Um... That's a, This is the best part of tour, where I get to figure out what it meant to other people. Yeah. And sometimes, like a very old man on my first time said, this book is about privacy, isn't it? I think it's about <laughs> privacy. And I was like, you get up here, <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, sure, yeah, if, that's not what I went into it doing. But yeah, yeah, I started with characters. If I don't like the people that I'm working with, if I don't think they're interesting and familiar, there's, there's no point for me. Yeah. Um, I think this book is about... Um, ownership and how that shapes relationships. And I think this book is a look at friendships and class solidarity as well. Um, What people come to me saying is, I love that you went into this book as a means for me to check myself. (laughs) And that's not at all what I did. Um, My first goal is to tell a good story. Um, But the books that I love that change the way that I think always present more questions than answers. So I love raising questions in this way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love that you said, um, that you said you start with characters. Cause one question I was going to ask you is like, there are so many th- like big themes in this book, race and class and privacy. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a yeah. good, it's a good one. Uh, family also like whether the wounds of our adolescents ever truly <laughs> are healed. Right. Um, there's so, so many sort of like big, big topics, but you it sounds like, started with character. So who was that like character in for you?
1: I started with Alex and Amira. I wanted, I knew I wanted a really awkward three-person relationship. That's all I knew. Yeah. Um, and I got really lucky and got two of them. So I have a young girl, the woman she babysits mm-hmm. for, and a new boyfriend. And then I got what is kind of an old story, which is a white mother, a black mm-hmm. caretaker, and a white child, mm-hmm. which has been a story for hundreds of years. But now, under the eyes of technology, we have a different relationship to how we respond or don't respond to it. And I love those little glitches in the system where hundreds of years of history come rolling back to moments between this woman and her babysitter.
2: Yeah, yeah. And the triangles, too, like, there's so much possibility for dramatic tension in a triangle did you think about like? Were you plotting out? How do I ask this question without giving away any spoilers? Were you? Did you know? Know sort of all the ways that the triangle would intersect, or like both of those triangles really when you start started? Or did it? Did those connections surprise you in interesting ways? What was that like process like? I knew of the major the
1: ones, the big ones. I knew. Yeah. But then there were little ones that ended up surprising me later. Yeah. Um, I, I there's no shortage of plot in here. I really like. Plot. Yeah. It's <laughs> um,
2: it's really really you yeah, that way
1: exactly um that's what I go for I love that page turny feeling and I don't think that that's a place that you can't yeah. cover big issues yeah. as well um and there's just something about the number three that makes it really there's always someone a little bit left out yeah um even with a mom and a kid and a baby and a, and a woman it's yeah. these surface level things of okay well she's my child okay but I know her better right and then you have right. a three-year-old. like, Alex, why who, like, are you so obsessed with a mirror when yes. you should be paying
2: attention to the fact that your child <laughs> right. is,
1: like, not... And then the three-year-old yeah. is, like, a useless person because she just chooses whoever is closest to her yeah. at that moment. Um, but then you have bigger themes of ownership. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: And, it all, and the fact, too, that... And I don't think this is... Well, I don't think this is a spoiler, but that you do have so many moments where you take, um, you take your characters to sort of like the maximum possibility for awkwardness with like no fear. <laughs> and also it just seems like you're having fun with it, even though the characters you're, you're, I'm like worried for them all. So like dinner party scenes or like, do you have any, um, strategies for the writers in the room? I've seen a few and how you handle those kind of like high wire moments as a writer of like, all my characters are in the same room, everything's coming to a head, like, how do you keep all the balls in the air and continue to um, surprise the reader, or does it is it instinct or?
1: Oh no, it's so much editing and <laughs> deleting and. Thi- there's a very big Thanksgiving scene in my yeah, book. Yeah, of that. course. Um, there's a lot of really traditional plot points, and I love when that can be twisted a little yeah. bit. And it's a very traditional method of. You have a bunch of characters. Let's put them all in a room yeah. and and make them deal with each other. And that was a lot of choreography. I mapped out a lot of what was happening. I kept losing. Like you actually, drew it. Down? Oh yeah, I drew the dinner yeah. table so many times because yeah. I kept losing babies. And like all where the were time. they sitting? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was, <laughs> couldn't find them. They, was, they or they were like floating. It was it was weird.
2: Floating babies. But, yeah. Nothing yeah. more dramatic than a floating yes. baby. Yes. <laughs>
1: or suddenly it would be in someone else's hand or, I don't know. But I just had to map it out and like choreograph an awkward setting, but I think also one of the most awkward parts of awkward things is people trying to correct it and overcorrect it. And so I had to make room for that as well. For
2: those moments, and then just unexpected baby moments yes. too. Yeah, totally. um, Yeah, Katie Waldman. I think in a really recent review, I forgot. I think it was in. It must have been in the New Yorker, because that's what she writes for. But she said something about how the dinner party scene is like the, the novelist like high wire act. Like it's like Fitzgerald's written them. Like it's yeah. when you take a stab, you're like joining. You're doing this like virtuosic thing. And yours. This is just. I just love it. It's oh, like good. every moment of it is so so tense. And it's very yeah yeah.
1: There's a lot going on there. It's not happening to me so it's great <laughs> yeah. So, yeah
2: um so you uh were a babysitter nanny I have also done that work before um I just want to ask you like did have all of your good nannying stories seeped into the book or are there any that you're um you're holding holding that? oh I'm
1: holding all Come of on. them Come on. <laughs> um I was obviously very inspired by the world and and you know Food getting stuck on your yeah. and like finding things of the kids and the things that moms say, even the, the title is something that I yeah, heard such a funny Yeah, many times. This is, I mean, I, there's a lot of authors I love that do auto fiction. I do not. This mm-hmm. is a complete work mm-hmm. of fiction. I think I was really inspired by the fact that I was a nanny for six years, but I knew I wanted to write yeah. and that was really pulling me along and it was still really difficult. And I thought about what would that look like for someone who's a very yeah. good nanny and has nothing at the end. Right. So that's hard for her, but I think it brings up points of exploitation with Alex a little yeah. bit. Um, she's had interns before, and she knows they're going to use that for the rest of their right. life, and it's like, well, what is Amira getting out of this period? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's yeah what and Amira, me.
2: too, like, you know, th- those moments of, like, wonderful tension, and again, like, opportunities for so much complexity between these characters, like, Amira just wants health insurance, mm-hmm. and Alex can't, that's so far from Alex's perception of what's going on that... Yeah, they just can't.
1: Yeah, she's like, "What co- what's your favorite cocktail?" She's yeah. like, "I want to go to the doctor." Right. She thinks yeah. she's being
2: like a good friend or right. something or some kind of like good employ employer really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought all of that stuff was handled in such an interesting yeah.
1: Were way. Were you a good babysitter? Um
2: I don't know, but one one thing that I... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ugh. So, somehow I got nervous. like I, maybe You seem is,
1: like... I feel like I would hire you. You like you'd be like a really good visitor. I'm babysitter. like, can they
2: hear me? Like, all those moms? Like, I still don't want yeah, them to know. No. Like, I feel like the facts... But I, it's some of the things... Like, one thing I, I loved so much about this book that was endlessly funny was how well you nailed that child, Briar, sort of, like, kid observations and kid voice and I did have a memory once of a little girl who like acted out her parents fighting with her dolls in really elaborate detail in front of me and I was like in a child psych class at the time and I was like oh no wow <laughs> but, You know it's those kinds of into like that kind of intimate moment it's 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 sort of seated in here too like again without giving things away but the things that briar has observed right about how her mother feels about their family situation right
1: right i feel like children children in in literature is kind of i have a lot of feelings about the same way at the dinner party because they're used a lot um but i do feel like sometimes they can be overly use as a plot device right. of someone who like the kid says that reveals the secret yep. at the perfect moment or whatever and I yeah. just wanted Briar to just so get to be herself and I don't know babysitting showed me how much more serious children are than you think yeah. they are she's um, funny
2: but not because she's trying she's funny because like
1: she's yeah. really anxious <laughs> right right there's like like there's a moment where yeah. Briar gets really serious and she says to her mom she's like mama some fish don't have feet and that's just how they are. (laughs) That is, you have to be so like, you're right. That is truly like, that's just like the energy that you're in at that time. And I kind of loved that about babysitting when you like drop into someone's family and they're like, okay, at nighttime, he likes Twinkle Twinkle. Also, he has to wear his dad's lanyard. <laughs> it's very important that he has the lanyard on. Not... Must
2: oh, you must yeah. never forget. <laughs> yeah, it
1: has. To, and you're just like, okay, like that's just like how they work. And so yeah. I definitely wanted to drop you into her oddities yeah. as well. Yeah. And
2: there's this whole like logical system, and and yeah. like one of the real sources of tenderness in the book, like it's not just juicy plot and great tension and all these things. Like there's real like love and tenderness between Amira and Briar. That's like so increasingly m- moving t- as the book goes on. And that's another thing I wanted to just like maybe just talk about that. That is something I feel like I haven't seen a lot in fiction, that incredible like tenderness between like the nanny and the kid and what that means and what it means when it ends and, f- and all the ways that that's, that can be really hard. Um, yeah.
1: It's, it's this really strange, complicated relationship yeah. that I love to write about, but it's so heartbreaking that you have a bond with this little person and it is inappropriate for you yeah. to hang out with them unless there's an exchange of goods. Yep. That's just how yep. that is. And they everything that you can teach them about being a person can be untaught very quickly. Yeah. And that's just how the relationship goes and
2: they might not remember you or right you don't know how they will um and amira's sort of thinking about that and the realization she comes to about that again without spoiling it are like some of the real pleasures of the book as moving and kind of sad as they are yeah um to get off the topic of babysitting i also i know that you were trained as an actor um, yes. Has anyone asked me about this
1: before? No, but I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to act or anything, but uh, yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: I won't make you, like, perform a monologue. Um, so, but I'm curious. Like, there are so many interesting ways in which that I could see that informing someone's work as a writer and, and mm-hmm. their, the, the way they think about scene. And, and then I couldn't help thinking and speculating that, like, some of those really amazing set pieces in the book might have been informed in some way by your theater training in terms of how you see a scene or mapping it yeah. out, like blocking. Um, can you talk at all about that? If you, if there is oh, a yeah. connection
1: or what they're um, to I, there's also no shortage of dialogue in here. Yeah. And I feel like they're, they're, it's impossible for me to not be inspired by reading scripts for four years in college. Um, I studied theater next to religious studies and there's probably like a really bad essay you could write about how like fiction is like in between those or something. But I was very <laughs> like, it's like it's say more. Kind right? Of Never mind. I'm not writing it. Um, but I was super inspired by just like how p- the, the rhythm of people talking and the words that they use. I remember in grad school when I workshopped the piece. There were a few comments of why is everyone in this novel talking about money? Everyone's talking about money all the time, and it's making me so uncomfortable. Oh,
2: that's so annoying. Sorry. Right? It, yes, yes. <laughs> if you're in my running my classes, I never say that. No, no,
1: no. <laughs> but I, I took it as one I want to like harness and lean into that uncomfortableness. But there were areas where I wanted them to pretend they weren't talking about money when they actually were and it's so easy to do that people saying this is a sketchy restaurant or that's not a safe school that's all money that is what you're talking about there and so I wanted to keep the uncomfortableness but make it not like dollars and cents so I think theater helped me with like word choice a little bit like figuring out how
2: people talk about things without talking about them yeah yeah that's so did you ever want to like, would you ever go back to that? life? did you put that life behind um, you? That I have not told this
1: story yet. <laughs> I was 23 and I booked a commercial for Google and oh. I shot it on my birthday and I was like, this is it. This is my big break. It's going to happen. But that is a big break. It was. It was okay, okay. I, I shot that. it and I hated it. And I just felt like I'm like this little pawn in the storytelling yeah. thing. Like, I just like, it wasn't for me. Yeah. And then I started taking writing classes at Gotham Writers Workshop. And that was it. Oh, cool. Yeah.
2: Gotham. So Gotham was, was that the first place you had taken like a workshop? Yeah. And awesome. Yes. So you went and ha- and you found it from the like, did you find it from the kiosks?
1: Yeah. The kiosks are everywhere. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, they that worked. made me miss so, yeah.
2: a lot. <laughs> um, Gotham Writers Workshop is like an independent writing center in New York for where people can take classes, six to eight classes usually. Um, so, when did you know though? Like, at what point in that process were you like, "I, this is what I wanted. Like, I know this is what I want to do."
1: At that point, I didn't. I had always been writing, and then when I studied theater, I would write my monologues mm-hmm. and then make up plays that they were from and just <laughs> lie about it.
2: <laughs> did anyone ever be, catch you?
1: No, I'd be <laughs> like, I'd be like, oh, it's like a black play. Like, you don't know. It. <laughs> <laughs> And <laughs> they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm like, I think I've heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, but I was not caught. Um, but I had been writing since I was a kid. Um, did, you, did you do this too? Did you have a name book when you were a kid? I feel like that's a telltale sign of a writer a little bit.
2: I don't think someone's so. not. Yes, now yes, I'm like, whoa. Yes, now yes. I feel I feel like I should. have. You still have time. You have okay, time right now. Okay. <laughs> I was always
1: carrying name books and like just figuring out what those people would look like, and I probably wrote like four like novel length terrible yeah. things, but I just thought it was for fun. And Gotham yeah, yeah. was like the first time I ever showed other people my writing.
2: Yeah, and so you were like this. You in showing other people your writing, were you kind of like? Was there like a teacher, like a sort of a thing that pushed you?
1: Yeah, I swear. when you were like you know, twenty-two, yeah. and someone's like, "Hey, this is good," you're, good at you're this. like, "Yeah, oh, I'm a new person now." Nanny. Like, and so uh, that's that's what that was. Yeah. But also, like, I'm sure you know too. Being a writer is finding jobs that will let you write when you're not doing them. So it wasn't like, yeah. "Oh, I'm a writer now." It was like, "I'm still a nanny." Now I'm a receptionist. Now I'm a barista. Like, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, now I'm like trying to get health insurance or do anything yes. to try to make it work. Yeah. So, it, it kind of related to that again, it, knowing that there are some writers in the room, like, so you're having this huge, amazing success, like every writer's dream debut experience. I think it's fair to say there's a Reese Witherspoon stamp on. The cover, so, Kylie, you made it. Um, I, I guess I'm. I mean, but I know that that's not that's not how books come to be unless you are, like, truly, like, the luckiest person on earth. So can you talk a little bit about maybe, if you're comfortable with this, um, some of the, like, stumbling along the way or, like, the rejections or things that, like, you had to work through in order to get to this place. Yes. And I
1: really like the way that you said it is perfect. Like, do I think my book is good and really believe in my six, my book? Yes. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's luck too. Like there are a lot of good books that do not see the light of day. I wasn't, I didn't like, (laughs) but I do, you know, and they're like, and like writing this, I don't have a chronic illness. I don't have a child. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things like feeding into the whole thing. And I think you can appreciate your work and also like acknowledge those things. But yeah, I could, I mean, there's so many rejections that made me really sad yeah. along the way. Yeah. Um, I applied to grad school two years in a row. Mm-hmm. And the first time I got rejected from nine schools. And that hurt. Yeah. That was hard. Um, and I thought, do I... Do you
2: still like know all of the... Did you wind up applying to the same schools?
1: A little bit of both. Uh-huh. Um, but that was hard. Yeah. And my now husband got a job opportunity in Arkansas and he said... Do you want to come and work and try and do it again? Where you're in Arkansas? In Fayetteville? Oh, I kind of like Fayetteville. Fayetteville's great. <laughs> yes, I agree. It's um, it's a cool town. So I went there and I was working at a coffee shop and I applied again. And the second time I got into nine schools. And so I was like, okay, maybe this is a thing yeah, now. Right. Yeah. And
2: when that happened, what had changed? Like, had, was it like a year of dedicated working on your craft? Or was it like you tweaked that application? Like, what changed for you in that time?
1: There are so many things. Um, I had time. To- I mean, time is yeah. the thing and time is money. And so yeah. that's just, um, the biggest thing I felt like is I knew my tendencies as a writer and like my, the difference between my first cover letter and my second. Yeah. Is so like the first one was like, can I come right at your school? And the yeah. second's like, this is what I write about. You want, tell yeah. me what you want. Like just, yeah. I know who I am now. Yeah. Like, let me know if you want to be a part of this. Also my sample was just better. Yeah. Yeah. I just had time to think.
2: Yeah, I love that though, that reframing in the in the personal statement, like whether or not you're a writer applying to grad school or not applying to grad school, like this idea that you have to come to a place with your work or that it help, yeah. like you're working towards a place where you can say like, look, this is what I am and take it or leave it. Like, this is what I do. Like, yeah. that's part of part of the whole
1: yeah. thing. Yeah, it's kind of writing cover letters is the worst, yeah. but like it's a place where you have to really come in your heart and say like, okay, well, am I going to keep writing if they say no? And if you're not, you probably shouldn't be applying. Yeah, because rejections are just—that's part of it all the time. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah I I'll, to change to a, a happier like topic. So the book is being adapted for TV or movie.
1: I'm only allowed to say film adaptation right now. Oh, Okay.
2: <laughs> wow. Cool. Yeah. Which um, is exciting. Yeah. So has. Yeah. I, I guess and then maybe this question is like null and void. But I was curious if there, if you've been a part of that creative process in any way, and yes. and, and again with your theater background and all of your interesting thinking about. About how to tell this story, like how is that? How has that been, and what has that process been like?
1: It's been gr- well, okay. It's been wonderful. Um, it's different than publishing. With like, okay, so if you do publishing, like these people become your family, and you're like emailing all the time. And in Hollywood, they're like, we'll call you back in five minutes. And six weeks later, I'm like, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> um, but they have such great ideas. It feels like workshop, but for the a movie setting, yeah. it's like I'm learning a new language. I really don't want to be too precious about the novel translating directly into film, because I think the best films do things differently. Yeah, Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so excited. They're really smart, and it feels like a workshop where we're all working on the same thing, and there's no competition, so that feels great. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Did you, when you were writing the book, did you have any, like, I guess this would be sort of impossible to you maybe, but did you have any, like, secret hope that it would someday...
1: I hoped that it would be successful enough that I could get a teaching job. That was, like, the yeah. biggest thing. But I do remember when I brought it into workshop, my friend Frankie said, I've cast the whole thing. Do you want to know who's who? <laughs>
2: was the casting good?
1: It was okay. Okay. <laughs> But she liked the book. And I was like, yeah. okay, so maybe there's like a cinematic yeah. bend to yeah. it. But yeah, that was the goal, just the novel.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting to me that you just said that thing about teaching. I felt a lot like that yeah. too. Um, and what? why is that? Like, what, what would that, like, what is that impulse?
1: I mean, I love teaching so much. And just like the, I, I kind of felt the same way that I did when I moved to Arkansas. I was just like, this gift of time yeah. is so big. The time to like make your plot bulletproof and all of those days when you write for two hours and you feel like I can't get it and then you go to the gym and you got it you know yeah. it's just those little tiny moments and the time to figure things out I think it, that's what the novel yeah. meant like I can do it again and yeah. I also love teaching so yeah that
2: yeah. feeling like right like I can do it again I remember that that's a big yeah. one it's like how can I find a way that I can do this yeah. again? how Please, can I trick anyone to let, me, let, do let me do this again, again? yeah um <laughs> my one question before we switch over is just I'm always interested in how people you've talked about it a little bit like writing two hours every day but is that your process are you like a write every day kind of writer are you like a binger how do you go through that sort of day daily work or not daily work
1: um for this novel and for a lot of stuff that I work on I do the morning for about three hours Mm -hmm. and then I do it again in the in the evening for like one or two hours but the beginning of something for me is just a lot of reading and writing. And sometimes it's just me sitting there and not looking at my phone. And that's what my writing day looked like that day. But then once I have a body of work, I will spend eight eight to 10 hours on it a day. So it just depends how much I have. But I'm sure you feel like this too. When you're writing something, you're never not writing it.
2: Yeah, there's a certain amount of like just being around, like being awake that's working.
1: Yeah, there's so many emails in my phone right now, like from today of just like maybe look this up or maybe use this line. So, but I also like in my Gotham Writers Workshop days, I was so afraid of not looking like a professional writer. And I really wish I had ditched that and just like whatever brought me to the page, just trust that. Yeah. You know, sometimes I look professional and sometimes I don't, and that's fine. Whatever yeah. gets me there. <laughs>
0: Kylie Reed in conversation with Julie Bunton. Such a Fun Age is published by G. P. Putnam's Sons. Bunton's novel Marlena is published by Picador. Kate Weisel's linked collection Driving in Cars with Homeless Men follows four women as they navigate violence and oppression in their working-class Boston neighborhood. Pachinko author Min Jin Lee, who selected the book for the 2019 Drew Heinz Literature Prize, writes that you can hear the crackle of heat and the roar of a powerful fire burning through these pages. Weisel conjured those flames during a visit to literati several weeks ago.
3: The collection takes place over a period of time and switches point of view. Um, and I've likened it the structure to a pool table where characters crash into each other, and their crashes dictate a trajectory. And so, the two stories that I'm going to read are brief. um, And they're coming from the point of view of the same character named Serena. Um, And the first story is called Trouble. We were all the same age, our new neighbors and us. Our puppies were the same age, our new puppy and their new puppy. We learned this as the neighbors hauled boxes out of their car and our little prize thrashed his neck against the thick leash we'd bought at Petco. Unleashed, he ran in viciously fast circles or mistook my ankles for chew toys. He found my cigarettes even when I hid them and ripped them to bits. We should call him Ashtray, I thought. (laughs) That's why we buy him toys, dumbass, Nico said. I didn't know this. I didn't know much. Cigarettes were already overpriced, and like a homeless person, I was picking through the promising ones. Outside the new neighbor's car for a split second, we expected that we could become great friends. The neighbors in us, just like normal couples, just like the puppies, normal puppies, who are pawing at each other like lovers. What's your puppy's name? Sorry I'm eating strawberries, the girl said. She dropped the carton on the grass, the strawberries rolling next to her laundry basket. The puppies teamed up to demolish the berries then chewed her sweatshirt collar, the gray sleeve darkening with slobber. His name's Trouble, I said. (laughs) News to Nico, who looked at our puppy reluctantly, but I had him there. It wasn't something he could argue with. Our puppy had hole-punching teeth and coal-lined eyes like an emo teenager. Get back, I said. Trouble was spread eagle on the concrete as the neighbor's puppy tongued his privates. I jerked his leash back, not on my watch. I scooped up trouble as he writhed in my arms, then started yelping like a Mormon girl during a kidnapping. I edged up the stairs while Nico charmed the neighbors. The girl bought it and started talking his head off about how we should all go to dinner or make it. We should have a dinner party, the girl said. We're 26. We're over partying. Briefly, I saw myself from the view of the light fixture on the stairs. Head first, knocked out, the door locked, bolted, my credit cards strewn below me like clues. Later, while trouble raised his leg to pee freely in the corner of the kitchen, I asked Nico if he noticed that both the girl and the guy neighbors had lazy eyes. Before I asked him this, I prefaced by saying that it wasn't the reason I disliked them both individually and as a couple. I just thought, what were the chances? Both of their eyes milked at the center, identically, their pupils going googly like magic eight balls. Trouble panted with his tongue out. I mirrored him, my tongue out, and what I imagined was a parched look while I waited for Nico to say something. I squeezed Trouble like a tube until he slinkied out of my grip. What does it matter about their eyes, Nico said, pouring baking grease into a beer can. It matters to me, I thought. Did they look at each other or half look at each other and think, you complete me? I hid under the dining room table with Trouble, (laughs) taking the padded tips of his paws against my fingers. I loved Trouble so much that I kind of wanted to hurt him. I ran my fingers down the tender muscles of his underside and bit longingly at the aching inside of my cheek. Trouble stared back, like he was so miserably disappointed in me, to the core, though he'd only known me a month. He freed himself from the cage of my arms. He gagged, hunched, and heaved onto the hardwood. My cigarettes. No, Trouble, no, I said. I pointed my finger to emphasize my anger, but it reworded itself as excitement. Go, trouble, go. I slid down the wall with my head in my hands as trouble ran track around the table. I thought of my brother when he was little and couldn't speak. How he twisted his hands in front of his mouth to talk to our mom. Blowing her kisses, pointing to cookies in the aisle, then back to his mouth. Mouth to object, object to mouth, his sincere words dribbling out like applesauce. Since I couldn't understand him, I would push him as hard as I could when no one was looking. I'd push him again, his helplessness, the maker of my fury. Trouble howled, barks like gunshots, his paws slipping and clicking on the hardwood. Why are you such a fucking baby, Nico said walking past with a plate of stacked bacon, paleo-fanatic that he was. Nico was gorgeous, everyone knew. He had slick black hair and tan skin like a man on the beach whose shoulder beads with water. Our children would be blended and beautiful, according to any lady in line at Stop and Shop. I sometimes imagine their sparkling cheeks and kinky, highlighted hair. They would be him with my affectations. In photos, their eyes tiny riots, wild with inarticulate demands. I want to tell you why I disliked our neighbors, the girl in particular, so you won't hate me as much as my puppy hated me. The following week on the back stairs, the girl remarked on the convenience of our shared lawn out back. When she spoke, I couldn't tell which eye to look into, so I looked at the lazy one, It swung up, receiving radio signals. There was a weird comfort in this. I had the advantage of feigning interest openly, the disfigurement like an invitation where only your true self is welcome up to the party. There's going to be a lot of shit in the yard, the girl said, like a fact. Maybe I didn't know things, like why trouble needed monthly shots when I didn't have health care. Or why he required wet food, a spoonful mixed you into a cup of dry food when you could just do either. But I knew damn well that we should clean up after him. We were adults. Every day, we were adults. Upstairs in our kitchen, trouble would start barking, and Nico and I would freeze. His barks were an alarm going off that we did not know how to disassemble. What do you want, Nico would say, huh? Trouble would hop madly at my waist. You think I'm playing, I say, say something. Nico would step towards me. He'd say, why didn't you set her straight? I'd jerk my head back without meaning to. Nico had hit me many times, more than many, more than hit, smashed my face into the wall where a mirror from a garage sale hung by the door where I never failed to check my gaze. A month later, I stood on the lawn shaking my knee. The sky was bleeding down the center like a gunshot wound. I was waiting for trouble to go already so I could clomp back upstairs to watch Bravo and eat Doritos standing up. He would circle me, the Doritos a red bag of crack, his tongue hanging loosely, that deranged shark. It was among these thoughts that I noticed a piece of shit on the lawn. Do I have to do everything, Nico said, all smug, like he was the smarter one. We were on our deck with the higher view of downtown. I'd forgotten to take out the trash. You don't even have a job, Nico said. School is a job, I thought. The 12-pack of craft beers he'd drunk stunk from the sweat that ridged his bald chest, which was now up against my chin. After I reset my nose with a pencil, I went to be alone in our guest room, where Nico's electric guitars hung on the wall like a rich kid's toys. I hid in the closet. I was the guest to talk to the guy I'd been talking to. When he teased me, I teased back, my old clog smelling like burnt rubber, a trickle of blood tickling my lip. The day after the 4th, both in our pajamas, the girl and I stood on the lawn as our puppies rocketed towards each other, tumbling together like free-fallers. It was noon and I'd already had two Coronas. My right eye was a puff pastry enclosing a pink slit. Nico had taken my freshly inked arm the night before, squeezing out a code to what awaited me at home. I wanted to be alone, really alone, before Nico, before trouble, the neighbors, before I could even remember. I wanted to be alone with the guy I wasn't supposed to be talking to. I'd go anywhere with him. Trouble got bigger, the girl said. My heart sprang like a punch from an arcade game. I couldn't measure change with what was mine. But he wasn't mine. I'd never asked for trouble. Nico and I had woken up from a bad fight. A purple shiner covered my eyelid in a deep swell but matched my makeup, so we decided to go for a walk. We were walking past the thick window of a shelter. Nico thought trouble could be a gift, a romantic gesture. Wow, I thought, I've never received a gift I'd have to walk for 15 years. (laughs) When he picked trouble out of the litter, I thought he'd stay that same size forever, the size of an organ, sticky, soft, and warm. We took trouble home. He trembled, then ripped up the sectional Nico had bought without insurance. Cut it out, you fucking monster, I screamed. In my spot, in the closet of the guest room, he fell asleep in my arms where he had puppy dreams. His paws moved like levers in a field where he was free and unleashed. The neighbor dog nipped at trouble's neck. The girl and I watched as they tugged at each other's skin, then retreated, their eyes fixed intently on the others, waiting to pummel. I didn't care about my eye. I was too tired to dab it with concealer and set it with powder. I wanted her to see. They like each other, the girl said. And I knew what she meant. She meant us. She wanted us to like each other. She wanted it since that first day they pulled up with their goddamn sorcerer's auras and dirty laundry. Stop it, I said to Trouble. Do you want to go to that new Mexican place down the street, just you and me, she said. I opened my mouth, but the heat crawled in and thickened my tongue. I wanted to go. I did. I wanted to sit next to her in the booth with my superior eyes, tracing my fingers down the row of similar but different margaritas. She was waiting with her permanent grin on. I could tell, though I stayed busy watching trouble. He was lunging this way and that way, trapped in the yard, thinking he was free. Was he bigger? Why couldn't I tell? When would I know? And then the dog started barking, cruel little yips, and I grabbed at the leash, but trouble had this new kind of force as he lunged at the neighbor dog. I looked at the girl thinking she would do something, but for the first time she said nothing. Dumb chick just stood there, waiting. I was wordless, wanting, wanting to look where she looked, but she was looking at me. This one will go down. Very quickly. Uh, it's called, I'm Exaggerating. Serena wore a navy two-piece suit, sensible flats, twisted up hair, a button collar over the wrist, read the faded blah, blah, blah script. Her first flight was to Wichita, and she had asked Nico if he knew what Wichita looked like from the sky. She wanted to hurt him, for him to picture her cloud height off the ground, 1,600 miles to the middle of untouchable she scooped ice and twisted bottle caps balanced her palms on headrests during dips the aisle a tightrope it rattled the overheads the ice her fingers sometimes the pilot and the co-pilot looked like the cops who rapped on her door the month before in the cockpit their hands on the gears against the bright complicated look of the control panel the backs of their heads against the bright, complicated look of the sky. She cracked the front door, chain off the bolt, swollen eye. Her smile across, index finger against her lip. Nico was passed out in boxers in the bedroom in a deep sleep. The cops pushed through, ignored her. I made a mistake, she said. She paced the blood in her hair graffiti orange and stiff. Blood on the white table, sprays of droplets from huffs where her mucus went loose under the break. I'm exaggerating, she told the cops, then recognized it as something he would tell her, right in her ear like a basketball coach fighting the sideline. Get up, Nika would say. You're faking all of this. Wichita was not what she'd thought. Little Rock, Providence, nowhere she'd been or belonged, but familiar. She had a day off in Spokane. Bumpy wheels of luggage by her heels, she roamed down Division Street, smokestacks spilling filth up towards an ocean colored mountain. Janice Joplin on a brick wall, fingers outstretched. Towards the river, the smell of spoiled milk and a sign near nature, near perfect. Pine trees that could see inside homes and for miles. Back on the plain, she found passengers to their rows. Locked in the Clorox blue of the bathroom, she fingered her new insignia, a wing pin she wore like a crucifix, into sleep. And on the dark seat, facing backward, going forward, she thought of what to do. This she thought of terminally. What was down there, what wasn't? There was no losing of a baby or liters of liquor in desk drawers. Maybe there was a lost baby. To be exact is to lie. She had enough money to run up a credit card. There was a lease, the stain of their signatures, one under the other, hers under his, as if he could hold her down with ink. Somewhere above Lake Superior, she heard an infant's cry. It was a saltwater gargle, as disturbing and rangy as a vocal warm-up. She walked down the aisle, nearing the sound, and found a mother dozing in the seat. She lifted the infant from the sleeping mother's arms. Her T-shirt was splotched with milk at the nipples, her slump vaguely sexual like she'd been slipped a Mickey. Serena strode the aisle with the infant in her arms, its wail an emergency. It filled the cabin with an engine-like force, though those fat-ringed thighs kicking against her stomach went nowhere. She watched as a businessman's eyes popped open. She gazed at them, felt his shock upon waking, mid-air, mid-shriek. She pawned the little one's wet head, the mask of a soft, wet scalp under her eyes, the seam of her lips by an ear the size of a bottle cap. She whispered, hey there. She whispered, don't be quiet. She whispered, keep screaming. Thank you.
0: Kate Weisel. Driving in Cars with Homeless Men is published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Shelf Talking is produced by Hillary and Mike Gustafson with help from John Ganyard and Bennett Johnson. Special thanks to the band Pity Sex, who provided our intro and outro music. And find those tracks on their album, White Hot Moon. You can also find a full calendar of Literati's upcoming events at literatibookstore.com slash event. Until next time, I'm Sam Krachenko. Thanks for listening.